on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. Some people will think about all the things that go wrong. You know, between now and noon, the judge could be grumpy, you know, a jerk and fall asleep, or who knows what. And that's what they put in their heads. And so if your brain is a patterning system that's looking to get cues to predict what's going to happen next, which some people think it is, then if you install all these negative memories that have things that haven't happened yet, that's what your brain looks for. So you want to install a memory of the thing you wish would happen in the future, the way you want it to happen, and your brain looks for those cues and things are more likely to go in that direction. That was Will Murray, and this is May the Record Reflect. Thank you for tuning in to the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Buckmelter, and today I am excited to talk to our guest, Will Murray. He's a Boulder, Colorado-based coach who specializes in performance and endurance training with a special emphasis on triathlon. He's worked with hundreds of athletes, from absolute beginners to Olympians, on mental conditioning to enhance their performance. Will also has a particular interest in PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, and how a protocol called reconsolidation of traumatic memory can help those who suffer from PTSD. Now, if you're wondering why we're talking about PTSD to a triathlete on a podcast for trial lawyers, that's a great question. Let's find out. Will Murray, welcome to the podcast. Well, my pleasure entirely. Thanks for having me here. Well, I appreciate you being here. So I know that our listeners are really intelligent people, and they, in this time, have put together why you're here. And it's to talk about how trial lawyers can take the techniques of performance and endurance training that you coach to your clients and how we can apply them to the endurance test that is litigation and the trial practice. So to start with, you have written a book called The Four Pillars of Triathlon, Vital Mental Conditioning for Endurance Athletes. Can you tell us what the four pillars of triathlon are? The four pillars of triathlon for endurance athletes are, first of all, motivation. You have to want to do this because nobody's paying you to do it. So it's got to be something in it for you there. Uh, Another one is discipline, where there's some things that you know aren't helping you. And if you didn't do those things, it would be better. So there's easy ways to actually have the discipline to do that. And there's the, the notion of recovery, which sounds like a different class of thing. Quick story on this is nobody gets more fit while they're exercising. You exercise and it stresses your body. And then when your body recovers, you recover more strongly or more fit, more fast. And the last pillar is imagination. Because in order to be able to set goals and decide what you want, you have to be able to imagine it. And if you can picture it, imagine it, and conjure it up, then you can actually develop the motivation to pursue it. You can engage the discipline to help you keep on the right path. And you can use the recovery to make sure that you're kind of getting all those gains that you've put in with your training. But imagination is maybe the most important one because it's the one that sets what you're actually attempting to do and what you're focusing all your energies toward. I understand that you have a brother who's a former prosecutor, and so you are not unfamiliar with the really intense demands of the law practice. And you've shared with me that you and he used to talk about the overlap of the work that you 
each have done. So how do you think that the four pillars of triathlon then apply to the law practice? It's true. My brother was a prosecuting attorney and we'd go on these these backcountry trips and things and we'd talk about compare and contrast working with athletes and working with juries or working with athletes and working with a judge, that kind of thing. And so we'd have these conversations about it. And it turns out that some people think there are some pretty strong similarities. So it's grueling to do a long race. It's grueling to do any kind of a trial. It takes a lots of advanced preparation and training to get ready for your race or your trial. You've got to make sure all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. And that just takes a lot of preparation and time going forward. And then you have this event that comes at a date certain where the, the trial is set. And you have to be ready because the trial is going to happen that day. And if you're ready or not, it doesn't matter. The trial is going to happen. And it's the same with a race. And there's things about uh, emotions about these things, about being nervous or jittery. There's problems with sleeping ahead of time when your brain is running and all that kind of thing. And it's physically really demanding. Plus, it's mentally demanding. A long, a long race, you have to make sure that you're fueled properly, have proper hydration. And that you're refocusing and refocusing and refocusing, refocusing all day. So the mental uh, acuity it takes is really exhausting. Your brain is about 3% of your body weight, but it occupies about 30% of your glucose. So your brain is really expensive. And the way it's expensive is when you're thinking hard. And when you're in a trial or preparing for a trial, you're thinking really hard and your brain is just blowing through these nutrition stores. So yeah, it's just really hard work both ways. And there's, there's a thing at the end where you finish your race or you finish your trial, and then there's an outcome. Right. So you mentioned discipline. The word of it just always sounds restrictive, boring, and routine. And so a lot of us might have a mental block against it. So what difference does discipline make? So there's some things that we know we have to do, like we have to get this brief in by a certain amount of time. Or we have to get these witness depositions taken by a certain amount of time. But maybe it's not the funnest thing. And so that's when people find ways to procrastinate or just the load of knowing these things you don't want to have to do is, is on your shoulders. And some athletes do the same thing. If they're triathletes, they might like to swim, but not like to bike or something like that. And so the discipline to actually do what you need to do can be really helped by some mental techniques, which turn out to be easy and effective and not very difficult to do. So the discipline, a lot of people think they have to muscle up and overcome it. But if you use your brain, it turns out to be easy and then you don't have to fight. So what are some of those techniques that you said are kind of easy? One thing that I can think of is maybe you just do the worst part of it first, which I think is hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the way. I mean, you think about the thing you don't want to do in the first, you get that done first and then the rest is easy. But in our brain, we know the difference between chores and fun. So if right now you think about something that's really fun, think about something that you really enjoy doing, mm -hmm. then your brain has a way of coding that and puts it in that category of fun. And that might be something like taking your grandchildren out for ice cream. Your brain probably codes that memory of that as full color probably a large image size in your mind's eye, probably a motion picture. And you probably have a feeling somewhere in your torso of warmth or something like that. And all those things that your brain says, oh, it's coded like that, that's fun. 
Then if you think about something else for a second, and you think about a chore, uh, doing your taxes, flossing your teeth. I don't really like doing my taxes, but I do not want to go to prison. And I don't really like flossing, but I do not want to end up with a jack-o'-lantern smile. So it's kind of worth it, right? And for me, it was swimming. I didn't like to swim because I didn't learn how to swim till I was 50 years old. And I swim like a box of hammers, but let's just not talk about that for a second. So when you think about some kind of a chore that you don't like, your brain also codes it in a different way than it codes the ones that are fun. It probably codes this thing as a snapshot, not a movie, as black and white, probably not colored, as a small little snapshot somewhere down in the lower bit of your field. And you might have a feeling in the pit of your stomach that's like this icky feeling. So if it's something you know you have to do and there's a benefit to doing it, if you recode it the same way that your brain codes for things that are fun, it goes into that category. So you imagine yourself doing this in full color, big screen, movie, and you have that same fun feeling that you did when you take grandkids out for ice cream. Then it goes in that category, and then it ceases to become a chore. And you never again have to fight it because your brain said, oh, that's fun, and we like fun, and we do fun. So does thinking about the outcome that is positive and that will make you feel good, a piece of that recoding that you're talking about? So, so that's astute because that's where the motivation part comes in because there has to be something in it for you. Otherwise, you wouldn't want to do it, right? Like if I didn't have to pay taxes, I wouldn't file taxes. <laughs> I didn't have to, right? Yeah. And so the motivation about what's in it for me. And so when you think about a, you know, a, a trial attorney, they want to appear very well prepared, mm-hmm. right? They want to understand how this judge works. They want to make sure that they have great rapport with the jury. They want to make sure that they you know, are presentable and all those things in order to do the best thing for their client. And so what's in it for them is to do really well and, and do the best they can in court for the person that they're representing or the state. And so that's the motivation. And then all the things you need to do that, if you can propel yourself and say, why am I doing this again? Your brain says, okay, great. I mean, everybody knows that your brain is coded for moving away from pain and moving towards pleasure, right? I mean, this is, we kind of know this. So if you explain to your brain why it's worth it and what the pleasure is at the other side of the pain, then your brain says, okay, got it. But if you don't bring your brain along and say, why are we doing this? It just says, this hurts, I don't like it, let's quit. Fortunately, a lot of these techniques are really fast and they're really durable. Like this, once you recode, figure out how you code for fun, and you recode the chore in that same way, the same visual formats and feeling in your body as you do with fun, it's a neurological shift that is done and it's in there for good. And then it never again do you have to fight it. So there's lots of mental training, but it's not like again and again and again and again. Once you make the shift, that one's done, let's do another one. All right. So what are some of these other easy tips and tricks you've mentioned? Well, one of them has to do with this, this idea that if you can explain to your brain what's the benefit, where the pleasure is through the pain, then your brain doesn't fight it anymore. So I use an athlete example for a second. Maybe you're doing a run workout where you have to do several quarter miles really hard, like rip your legs off hard. And so maybe you have to do 10 of them at the track. And if you don't explain to your brain what you're doing, the first one really hurts and the second one really hurts. And then about the third one, your brain starts to say, I don't like this. 
we're supposed to do 10. Maybe let's only today do four. <laughs> like you have this negotiation in your head. But once you've primed your brain on it to look for what it's looking for and realize where the benefit is, if instead, before you go to the track, you say, I'm going to do 10 laps really hard. And the reason I'm doing this is I'm trying to elevate my top end speed and get my leg speed up so that on race day, when it comes down to the final sprint, I will have it and I'll be able to finish that last 400 meters really strong. I explain this to my brain and it says, oh, okay, great. So then on the fourth one or the fifth one or the sixth one, instead of saying pain, I don't like it, I was at the track recently. And on the sixth one, it said, are you going to count that? <laughs> like, come on, this is supposed to be hard. And instead of giving me the business about it, I don't like it, it was giving me the business because I wasn't going hard enough. <laughs> so how you actually do this is there's a little bit of a, a process. And the first thing you do is you say to yourself, why am I actually doing these? And then you would make a little movie in your head. Imagine yourself over there where you can see yourself doing these 400s just perfectly, just the way you want them to go. And you say, okay, there goes Will, around, 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 it's great. And you do it dissociated like you're seeing yourself in a movie over there. And if it looks really good, something you might say, well, what I could do even make it better and imagine watching that movie of you doing your 400s. Then when it looks really good, you step into it and make that movie through your own eyes and your own skin, feeling what it would feel like. If you have to close your eyes to make the movie, that's fine. And you make it in full color of this going perfectly just the way you want. And then you say, okay, your brain then knows what it's looking for. And then when you're doing it, your brain says, oh, yeah, we know this one. We've seen this movie before. We know how this goes. So that's how you make the mental movies. In a courtroom setting, you could think about between now and lunch and going into the courtroom. And if it goes perfectly well, as well as I can expect, this is what it looks like. My opening statement goes perfectly. What would that be like? What would the judge respond like? What would the bailiff be looking like? What would the jury look like? What would the opposing counsel be like? And what would I feel like if I gave just like the, the very best opening statement I'm possible and you make that little movie in your mind's eye? And if it looks good from over there where you see yourself giving this opening statement, then you step into it as if you're giving it. And, you know, if it takes you 10 minutes to do your opening statement, these are not real-time movies. It would take you like 30 to 45 seconds to make this a movie of how ideal an ideal opening statement would be. And then just let it there and your brain's all ready to go. It knows what it's looking for. It knows how to do it. It's seen it one time through. And yeah, there's a part of neuroanatomy about this that makes it work. Yeah. My son was a, a snowboarder, amateur snowboarder. He started when he was seven and uh, he's now almost 24. And when he was in competitions, he worked with a coach, a mental fitness coach who led him through these exercises where he had to imagine being at the top of the, the half pipe and dropping in, doing his run, sticking the, the, the landing, ending, and then being on the podium. Absolutely. We've all watched ski races on TV, the downhill and slalom races. And they always have a shot, the skier, right before she takes off and goes down. And you can see them kind of swaying. They're standing there still, but they're kind of swaying, going back and forth. Well, you know what they're doing. They're skiing the course. Yeah. Right? They're skiing the course. And they're doing it perfectly, which is the main thing. There is another part of this. Some people will think about all the things that go wrong. 
you know, between now and noon, the judge could be grumpy, you know, a juror could fall asleep or who knows what. And that's what they put in their heads. And so if your brain is a patterning system that's looking to get cues to predict what's going to happen next, which some people think it is, then if you install all these negative memories that have things that haven't happened yet, that's what your brain looks for. So you want to install a memory of the thing you wish would happen in the future the way you want it to happen, then your brain looks for those cues and things are more likely to go in that direction. It's called catastrophizing. It's like, oh, what if I show up at the courtroom and I've got like ketchup stains all over my shirt and I've popped off a button and one of the jurors is somebody I had a fender bender with once and all this stuff. And they just start making these movies of what else could go wrong and what else could go wrong. And so when you start to catastrophize, the easiest thing to do is replace it with, instead of what you don't want to happen, replace it with a movie of what you do want to happen and leave that in there. It doesn't mean you should ignore all those catastrophes and plan to avoid those. You know, make sure that you actually don't have spaghetti sauce all over your shirt. But also when you do think about the last thing you want to think about the program in your brain is what you do want to have happen. Have that movie go perfectly and leave that as the last part. So you're just training your brain how to, how to think. Yep. And look for what you want to have happen. Our brains are good golden retrievers. They aim to fetch what you throw at them. <laughs> so throw the thing you want to have happen. And in a big, long trial that might be a few days long or more, by the time you do jury selection and all that stuff, it's a long process. You have to chunk it down into little parts. Like if jury selection goes just right, what's that look like? And then with this next interview of this juror, what does that look like? And you just chunk it down to these little parts because you have to refocus and refocus and refocus. These trials are grueling. And my brother, when we talked about this, he said he just got no sleep. You know, he would just think his mind was running all night long about what's going to happen the next day. And at the end of a trial, he is just like worn slick. So that can affect your performance and trigger a lot of anxiety. So let's talk about getting out of our own way and not getting wigged out in a way that affects our performance. Yeah. So if you do these mental rehearsals on these little things about if it goes perfectly, what does it look like? That's the biggest step. But there are some things you can do in the moment to really help. The easiest thing to do is breathe. So Fritz Perls, who back in the day was a Gestalt therapist, said, fear is excitement without breathing. So if you breathe, it turns from fear to excitement. And so the easiest thing right now, if you take a big breath in yes. and let it out and do that again, another big breath in and let it out. So a lot of people these days, because of COVID, have a, have a pulse oximeter. They're checking their, their blood oxygen saturation. Yeah. If you have your pulse oximeter at home and you put it on here, at, you know, we're at uh, 5,000 feet elevation. You're at sea level in Seattle. It will vary by elevation. But with a couple of big inhales and exhales and you wait about five seconds, you can watch a couple of ticks go up on your blood saturation. So breathing really works. All right. Well, I my husband did buy a pull socks. Find <laughs> this out. Yeah. Crazy. So that's the easiest thing to do is is a couple of big inhales and exhales. That will immediately change your status. Another one is to smile. Now, I think if you're in the courtroom, you have to time this right because if you smile at the wrong place, 
be weird. But <laughs> when you have a genuine smile that starts with the crinkles in your eyes and goes down to your mouth, that's called a Duchenne smile. It's a real genuine smile. When you smile like that, it releases hormones that promote a feeling of well-being in your body. Now, you might not be, you might not have any more well-being, but you feel like you have more well-being. Mm-hmm. If you smile, when you smile, it makes you feel much better. So those are two things you can do in the moment that will actually really drop your nerves and give you a feeling of calm and well-being. And they're cheap and they're free and they're easy and they're really fast and they really work. All right. Breathing and smiling. Yeah. Yeah. So like in a race context, I tell my athletes, you smile at the volunteers, you smile at the spectators, you smile at the, the traffic cops who are course marshalling. Whenever you're feeling really rotten, you just smile. Start from the eyes, but come down to your face, and it makes you feel better. You might not be suffering any less, but you feel like it. So last year, you wrote an article for Team USA Triathlon called Race Day Planning, Writing a Plan in Seven Steps. Step number five was to identify places on the race course where you will need help. Can you first talk a little bit about what that means? And then secondly, how that could map over to a trial day? Yeah, there are some people who you know have your best interest at heart. They only want good things for you. And they, and they wish you every success. And so in imaginary terms, if you could have those people stationed out at the race course at key places, and you knew what they would say to you as you ran or cycled by, what would they say? And so it might be a fictitious person you read about. It might be somebody from your past, somebody in your present. But they totally have your best interests at heart. And what kind of encouragement would they give you at that point? So in the trial, you might say, here's going to be a tough spot where this is this witness is sketchy. The cross-examination is going to be a little bit strange. I might have to redirect. I'm not sure. Well, who would you want to have in the courtroom with you, in imaginary terms, who would basically say something positive to you, like, don't worry, you've done this a million times. You know how this is going to go. You're really well prepared. Anything that could happen, you know what to do. So we're going to be good, like that kind of thing. And they're your imaginary friend. They're not actually there. But at certain points in the trial, there are these key points where you know you're going to need some extra resource. Who would that be? And what encouragement would they give you? And imagine that they're going to be there at that time. So one of these athletes I coached who was doing the Hawaii Ironman World Championship in Kona, um, he had his dog that he loved as a kid. He put at mile 18 of the run where everybody always falls apart at mile 18 of the run. And when he ran by and imagined the dog was there and ran with him a little bit, he like invented all this stuff, but it gave him a measurable boost because we looked at his run splits and we saw all those places. He picked his pace up. We have data that shows it really worked. (laughs) And for doing some of the things that you don't necessarily want to do but need to do, one of the things that athletes do is they imagine somebody who they would never, ever, 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 ever want to disappoint. And when they come up with this choice point of, I could do this, but I don't really want to, then they'd say, well, after you did this, what would that person you never, ever want to disappoint say if you didn't do it? And they go, oh, I don't want to disappoint that person. I just better do it. Well, if if you're defending somebody in the courtroom, that is an easy um, person to imagine. Yeah, you bet. Do you find that people usually know what their weakest point is that they need to anticipate or 
do we often have blinders about what we don't perform well at? For people who've done it before, they pretty much know. Okay. If you've gone into a race situation that you've never been in before, you're going to find it. And for some people, once they find it once or twice, then it becomes anchored together like they say, oh, I'm always bad at that, which might have been, they just had one unlucky thing. Yeah. And so, yeah. So that actually leads perfectly into the next question, which is about not that you have never been in the courtroom before, but the last time you were there, you totally bombed out. Maybe you lost the case or something else happened. You kind of got chewed out by the judge, something there that happened and traumatized you a little bit. And now you're really apprehensive and you're fearful of this upcoming performance. So what are some ways that you can overcome feeling psyched out? If I can use a golf example, back in the day, there was a South African golfer called Gary Player. And Gary Player, when he made a bad shot, didn't leave his, he left his feet right there. And then he swung his club a couple more times, imagining how he wished that shot would have gone and replaying in his head as the perfect shot, even though it didn't happen that way. And then he would head down and find his ball. So he cleaned it up in his mind before he left the spot. So the memory was, this is the way I wish it would have gone, not, oh my God, what a mess. So that's one thing you can do is say, well, how... If I had it to do over again, what would that look like? And you make that picture in your head and you leave that picture in your head. So next time when you run into it, you've got the right thing installed in your head and not, oh my God, what a mess that was. That's one thing that people can do. Okay. And also realize that it's easy for things to get wired together. So coincidentally, this thing happened and this thing happened at the same time, but your brain's your brain wires them together. And the neurologists say, what's wired together fires together. Hmm. So this one thing happened, and it's how, we, it's how we develop traumas and phobias, right? One time, somebody got stung by a bee, and now forevermore, they have a phobia about bees because those things got wired together so tightly. So you can undo those things by actually some you know, neurological techniques that are kind of fast and easy. But the easiest thing to do is say, well, it went this way. It could have gone a bunch of different ways. If I had it to do again, how would that have gone? And you run that tape in your mind's eye and you leave that tape there. So the next time it happens, you say, oh, I know how to do this. So it sounds like pretty much from start to finish, there's a lot of uh, mental conditioning and creative visualization. Right. I I think there is. And, you know, we talk about uh, imagery being visual plus auditory plus, plus kinesthetic. So what did it look like? What did it sound like? And what in my body did it feel like? So again, like the thing, you know, that if you think about the thing you really like, if you make an imaginary picture of yourself doing that, and also what would it feel like in your body? It's how method acting goes, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to tell them what emotions they feel that you feel like this in your body and then everything else comes along. So the imagery has all three major modalities, visual and auditory and kinesthetic. And then you've got the full package. Well, when you said method acting, it it actually made me think of what we do here at NIDA, which is you learn by doing. And so you uh, attend a lecture where a skill set is presented to you. The instructor talks about how you do it, and then they demonstrate it, and then your turn to try it out. And so it's just building a muscle memory so that you can kind of turn off this 
anxiety about the physical performance and just focus on the, the mental part, which is really the performance part that, that counts. I agree. And if you think about what these lawyers have to contend with, they've got to keep track of the judge. They've got to keep track of the process. They've got to keep track of what the opposing counsel is doing. And they have to attend to a jury if it's a jury trial. And there's a bunch of people in that box that you have to build rapport with. You have to see who's tracking with you and, and pace and lead them. You have to see whose body language doesn't look like they're tracking with you and pace and lead them over and take the temperature of the room at all times. You have to juggle about a million different things. And so to be able to not have to worry about the performance elements, to be able to put your full force of attention on the people in the courtroom, that's a big deal because you know people have got limited bandwidth. And like we said, your brain is a total blue cost hog. And if you have to think really hard, it just really saps your reserves. And a, a big part of mental conditioning is actually it's being fueled enough because the first thing that goes when you're running out of blue, your blood pressure drops is your cognition. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to make sure that, you know, this isn't a mental thing. It's just, you just got, you know, blood sugars in the right spot. So keeping fueled up, like don't skip lunch. And stay hydrated and get as much sleep as you can and all that good stuff. Also in my research, Will, I came across some indication that you've worked a lot in PTSD healing and research. And I know that a, a great deal of our attorneys have really difficult cases where someone has been traumatized by the event that brought them into the courtroom in the first place. And so rather than us completely talking about the mental training for ourselves. I wonder if you could talk about how the reconsolidation of traumatic memories protocol works when you're examining a witness who suffers from PTSD and what kind of effect they might have on the jury. When a witness has been victim of a trauma, an assault or battery or something like that, the jury will expect them to act and look a certain way. They'll expect them to have that same kind of nervous, twitchy body language. Maybe their voice will constrict a little bit, be hard for them to speak. They might tear up and all that kind of thing. When a witness has gone through something like reconsolidation of traumatic memories protocol, which eliminates the traumatic feelings in about 95% of clients, and then they go into the witness box, the jury's going to be expecting them to look like a victim. But the trauma has been cleared and they may tell the story like it's a matter of fact story like the last time they went and got the oil changed on their car, which for some people might be a traumatic event, but let's leave that alone for a second. So when you have a witness that has had something effective like reconsolidation of traumatic memories and they don't have the traumatic memory, they still have the memory. It doesn't have all the rising emotions and physiology attached to it. Some lawyers would look and say, I need to explain to the jury that she's had treatment and it's no longer a traumatic memory, that she appears not like a victim here, the victim that they're expecting to see, who can't tell the story, who breaks down on the stand, who cries, who fidgets, whose voice changes two octaves and stutters things out. Um, the jury might be confused when she tells the story of when she was abducted and they look and say, like, something's not right here. The jury might need to understand that she's been cleared of her tyrannic memory, and this is the memory now of this awful thing that happened to her now that she's been healed of her trauma. So they'll hear her words, but they will see how she looks and hear how she looks. And if it doesn't line up, a jury can get confused. 
The first time this came out was a University of Pennsylvania study in the 1980s and has been shown true, you know, for the last, you know, 40 years that in an emotional conversation, 93% of the message is carried by nonverbal information and only 7% is carried by the actual words that you say. So how you say it, tone of voice, volume, tempo, uh, pitch, uh, and the body language that goes with it, hand gestures, the way your head tilts, the way your you know, body position, all that stuff, that 93% is actually carrying that in a nonverbal way. And the actual spoken words is only 7% of the message. Understandable. So what is this protocol? What is it, first of all, and how does it work? Why does it have such a huge success rate for clearing out trauma? In short, without getting into too much neurology, when we have a traumatic memory, it's stored in a different part of your brain than where your normal memories are stored. So you can remember this morning brushing your teeth, and that's like a normal memory. Or you can remember you know, last night reading a book or something. It doesn't trigger all this emotion where the uh, adrenaline courses through your system and dopamine courses through your system. You get jittery and you get a bad feeling in your stomach and you sweat and all those things. It just doesn't happen. When we have a traumatic memory, it's stored in the part of the brain where the, the trauma centers are and all those physiological reactions happen. So people don't remember their traumatic memories. They relive their traumatic memories. And all those hormones course through your system and create all those physical sensations and sweating and all that kind of stuff. So what the reconsolidation of traumatic memories does is it reformats the formatting of the memory. It doesn't change the content, it changes the format. And it migrates that from the trauma center, from your amygdala into your prefrontal cortex where your normal memories are stored. So it becomes more like a normal memory. And you can tell the story in a very matter-of-fact thing as if it happened to someone else or something like that, where it doesn't trigger all those, the flood of hormones. We, we have uh, this kind of normal coding in our brains, and this is a, there'd be a normal response to things. But once it's migrated from that center to the center where your normal memories go, all the physiology doesn't come along with it. And so somebody could be up on the, on the stand telling a story of how they were assaulted in very matter-of-fact tones as though it happened to somebody else because it becomes more like a normal memory and dissociated from the physical feelings about it. That is really fascinating, fascinating research. And how meta. We're sitting here using our brains to talk about our brains and figure out our brains. Yeah, in this time when trauma is happening all over the place, you know, due, due to the COVID-19 situation, due to the present situation, the political situation, um, there's trauma everywhere, and people are absorbing trauma. The other thing about this, I think, is that many attorneys, when they have to listen to horrible story after horrible story after horrible story from different clients, are maybe susceptible to picking some of this up. You can become traumatized by hearing a story of how somebody else went through a traumatic event. So the attorneys have to be careful to make sure that this does not absorb and have some kind of rain shield coating. When they, they hear these stories, they don't bring it home and they don't let it go inside and become part of their story to make sure that you know, you're wearing a raincoat and have it slide off. Yeah. Easier said than done. Yeah, but, but effective. And different people have different ways of doing this. One clinician I know who works specifically with trauma patients, she said she pretends she's just like Swiss cheese. And the story goes right through the hole and out the back, right? Just doesn't absorb and somebody else I know has a um, clear plastic raincoat 
and the story hits it and it just like slides off. It just doesn't do it. Other people I know before they go to bed, they just mentally say, that's out, that's out, that's out. And they just, because if you hear these stories over and over again, which many of the attorneys do, you have to have some way for those things not to come, you know, be absorbed. Right. Again and again, it comes down to mental conditioning. And this is a real thing with uh, with attorneys who've been at it for a long time, especially, you know, people who work in criminal. They've got to take depositions and statements and hear witness testimony from horrible things. And it can actually over time seep in. And But there's a lot of people who have a trauma, PTSD trauma, from from a story they heard from somebody else. That can happen. Mm-hmm. Do you think most of that is mental? Well, I think it's both. The kind of false Cartesian duality we don't have to worry about here. I think the mental part is, you know, getting a decent night's sleep is a major deal. And sometimes that's hard to do when your mind is racing and all that. So there's some some fast and easy techniques for most of the time, folks don't have problem getting to sleep because they're exhausted, but they wake up and then they can't get back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a couple of techniques for getting back to sleep. One of them is, and everybody knows this when you have a pen and paper next to your bed so that when a thought comes that won't let you go back to sleep, you write it down and say, I got it. You put that down. That's great. Uh, another one is limiting your time with a screen if you can right before you go to bed. That's one of the things that we know about. But also there's a couple of techniques to help get back to sleep if you can't. And one of them, this is kind of odd. And if you're driving a car, don't do this right now. But if you lay there and you close your eyes and you roll your eyes back in your head as far as you can with your eyes closed for as long as you can, as hard as you can, it will knock you out. You won't, you will not feel drowsy. All of a sudden you'll wake up and it's five hours later and you say, what the hell just happened to me? I've never heard that before. It really works. It really works. And so you'll try it. And sometimes you'll be rolling your eyes back in your head and say, it's not working. It's not working. It's not working. And then you wake up and it's <laughs> a second thing that people do to get back to sleep. If they can't, is they run the tape backwards when it happens. So I was asleep and then I got up to get a drink of water. Well, then I got the drink of water and then I came back here and I found my slippers and then I got my slippers off and I slipped back into bed. And I lay down, I put my head, if you run backwards, all those things in backwards sequence, that also is like knockout drops. Hmm. You'll just wake up some hours later saying, well, what, what just happened here? So those are two things that are fast and easy that really, really help people get back to sleep. But if your mind is racing so much that none of that stuff works, like it's got important work to do and it says, oh, I got to think about this thing. I have closing argument tomorrow and I got all this other stuff and you're still not prepared. Then sometimes I say, just don't fight it. Just get up and do the work and then go back to bed. Like just, you know, sometimes you just have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had that experience when I was in grad school. My mind would just be racing and thinking about all the stuff that I had to do for work and things that I had to write for class and the books I had to read. And one night my husband was like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm so stressed out. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about that. And wow, poor me. And he said, well, what you can do about any one of those things right now? And I said, well, yeah, I could read, I, you know, I could read that article that I'm supposed to write about. And he said, okay, so get up and do it. You know, and if there's nothing that you can do right in the moment about that thing that you are obsessing about, then Deal with it. 
attend to it. Yeah. And everybody's had this happen to them. They've got their piece of paper and pencil, you know, next to the bedstead. They've got an important presentation or they've got a motion to, or something. And they, and they kind of wake up and they say, okay, I'll just write it down. And they write down these notes. And then during the night, somebody steals that piece of paper and replaces it with another piece of paper within their handwriting is pure gibberish. <laughs> We've all had this happen. But, but there is a thing, it's called the hypnagogic state, where you're not quite asleep and you're not quite awake. Yeah. And in that period, your subconscious mind, your conscious mind is sort of off doing what it does, and your subconscious mind has full brain to do things. And so that's where a lot of really good stuff can happen. And uh, it's said that Alexander Graham Bell, in his laboratory, had a couch, and he would hold this metal ball that was the size of a baseball or something in his hand, and he'd lay down on the couch. And when he'd start to fall asleep, the ball would fall out of his hand and wake him up. So it kept him in that twilight zone between sleep and awake, the hypnagogic state. And that's when he worked out a lot of the engineering and physics problems that he was working on, set that up like on purpose. So if you really can't sleep, you can get in this twilight. You might get a chance to work out some things that were vexing you in the daytime and in the hypnagogic state. The, the answer was there all the time. And it says, well, here. And you go, oh, huh, what was hard about that? Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't heard of what you were saying about Alexander Graham Bell or the hypnagogic state, but I've certainly experienced that where as a writer, I can't get through something or I can't, I just can't quite get the angle that I'm looking for. It doesn't quite feel right. And then I just leave it behind and I think, well, I'm going to sleep on it. And then I wake up in the morning and there it is. Yeah, your subconscious mind is pretty smart. Your conscious mind's busy doing all this stuff, and sometimes it's just underfoot. And if you can get it out of the way, your subconscious mind said, okay, I've been trying to tell you this for a long time, and here it is. So yeah, sometimes you just let it perk. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, we are just about at the end of our interview. I've learned so much. It's been really wonderful to have you here. So helpful and have brought a really different way of thinking about how to be a lawyer. So I thank you very much. Before we go, I have a signature softball question that I like to ask all of my guests. I should say it should be fun. I want you to answer this with without thinking about bills or anything sensible, but how would you spend a million dollars? So I'm trying hard to think of an answer that's not trite and hackneyed. But what occurs to me is if I were to take a million dollars to a casino and put it on roulette on double zero, the odds are 35 to one, right? Sure. So if I hit that, that'd be 35 million. And if I let it ride there and hit it twice more, that would be like a very large amount of money, like, you know, millions and millions and millions. And then I would be able to support all these charities I really, really like to support in a hugely major way. Ah. We could give the million dollars away. It's just a million dollars. Yeah. But if I multiplied the million dollars by 35 to one and then 35 to one and then 35 to one, we could put a dent in some issues. So that's what I would do with it. All right. Well, may the odds be ever in your favor. It sounds like you need them. Well, it was really such a pleasure to talk to you today and to get so much practical advice for upping our own performance and getting out of our own way. I know that you've helped me personally so much, and I have to think that our listeners feel very much the same way. Thank you so much for being here today. 
Yeah, these are special times and the people who you serve in your organization, we need those folks at the top of the game more than ever. So hats off. Will Murray, everyone, thank you so much. So we have talked about a number of different topics that have supporting materials and resources that you listeners may wish to check out. So please be sure to have a look at the episode's show notes for those links. And if you like what you've heard in this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or visit the Contact Us page at nita.org. Your rating helps listeners like you find podcasts like us. Until the next episode, everyone, stay safe and be well. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production.